This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of 91. The value of investments can fall as well as rise and losses may be made. In South Africa, 91 is an authorised financial services provider with me today is Deirdre Cooper, who's a portfolio manager at 91 in London. Let me just read the first paragraph, or rather the title of the piece. It says, in a growth-challenged world, decarbonisation remains a powerful structural growth trend. COVID-19 has created opportunities and challenges for investors aiming to tap into it. In general terms, Deirdre, would you say that what has happened over the last three to four months, which has been extraordinary, has derailed or emphasised decarbonisation and its associated uh, trends? Good morning, Lindsay, and great to talk to you. Thank you. Um, I think over the last couple of months, which, as you say, have just been absolutely unprecedented in terms of what's happening. The, in the first instance, clearly there's been a pause in the trend, the policy trend towards decarbonisation. There has, of course, been also an unprecedented decline in emissions. So in the month of April, the UK's carbon emissions were down almost 40% versus the previous month. But that, of course, is the result of a complete pause in economic activity. And while in the short term, I think it makes us all realise um, how nice it can be to live in a, in a low carbon world, it isn't um, in any way helpful in our long term journey towards the low carbon economy. Um, and on that front, as I said, in the short term, the policy agenda paused for a couple of months. We really expected it to accelerate um, as we start to come out of the crisis. And we've certainly seen that happen. Um, it's never the same in every sector and every region. I think we've talked about this in the past. Um, so the European Union has been the first um, and by far and away the most aggressive in emphasising the green recovery I think a part of this, you know, at a very fundamental level is driven by the fact that the stimulus that governments around the world have put in place to help the economies recover from the COVID crisis is larger um, than any other time in history. It's even bigger than the great financial crisis and it's been put in place more quickly. And I think there is an understanding that that debt burden is being left to our children and our grandchildren yeah. and that therefore the monies that are being spent should be invested in a way to make the planet a better place for those children and grandchildren. And that's certainly part of the philosophy behind the 1.85 trillion European Recovery Fund, which has a number of me measures, about 25% of that is directly focused on the low carbon economy with measures for building efficiency, for renewable energy um, and for um, clean transportation. And we've also seen countries, individual countries, put in place programmes that are focused on decarbonisation. We've seen the, the French emphasise electric vehicles in their auto stimulus package. Germany did the same thing. In fact, that stimulus package is focused only on electric vehicles. There was an expectation that it may cover combustion engines as well, but it hasn't. Um, and in the UK, we have some news that the government are planning an electric vehicle stimulus package to come in, into place in the next month or so. 
Okay, so COVID-19 hasn't derailed everything in the background. It may not make front page news, these announcements that you've just referred to, or some of them, but they are still going. And just let me reiterate that the European Recovery Plan is a 1.85 trillion euro initiative, and it's the European Union has put accelerating the shift, it says, towards a lower carbon, more sustainable economy at the heart of its post pandemic stimulus strategy which is a good thing when that post-pandemic era is we don't know it could be months it could be years Uh, you also say that europe's announcement recognizes that the world still has a massive task ahead to transition from today's unsustainable economy to one based on cleaner energy and transport and of course one thing that comes to mind deirdre is that the oil price okay it's recovered from let's call it $15 to to $40, but it's still relatively cheap compared to it where it was a year ago. So people are tempted to say, oh, I'm just going to stick with carbon for a while. So this is such a huge misunderstanding in many ways. You know, when if we were sitting here 10 or 20 years ago, um, the change in fossil fuel prices really mattered for the relative economics of low carbon solutions. Um, Where we are today, it really doesn't matter. So we're at a point where, you know, on the power side, renewable energy is significantly cheaper um, than the fossil alternative in Europe and in the US, in countries where the interest rate environment is low. Um, So if you were to choose to build a power plant in North America today, um, where gas prices are at levels that no one had ever envisaged. So the gas price in North America is about a dollar fifty or so. In Europe, it's you know five or six dollars. Um, the cost of electricity from that gas plant um, is about somewhere between forty and fifty dollars a megawatt hour. If you were to build a wind farm, you can you can produce electricity somewhere in the low teens, so maybe twelve to fifteen dollars. You can do solar around twenty. So a decline in the gas price simply doesn't make any difference. Renewable energy is just much cheaper. And that's because of the technological progress that has um, we've seen over the last couple of years and decades in the low carbon economy. And it's true in the power sector. It's true in efficiency. It's also true in clean transportation um, with electric vehicles becoming you know, more attractive with a longer range um, at better price points. Um, And of course, that um, EV sector is also one where people think, oh, well, will people stop buying EVs because the the petrol price is a bit lower? Um, And what we see, of course, here in Europe, where you and I sit, is that 80% or more of the petrol price is taxed. So the decline in the oil price doesn't really affect our decision to buy an electric car. In China, which is the world's biggest EV market, um, the, the petrol price is limited at $40 a gallon. Um, So once the oil price hits that level, it doesn't get passed on to consumers. So the only place where you do see a bit potentially of a dent in EV demand is in the US, where the transmission mechanism, um, you know, from the well to the pump is much more, um, much clearer. Having said that, the US is a small EV market. Um, China was about 50 percent of electric car sales last year. And Europe is by far and away the fastest growing market because of some of the stimulus measures I talked about earlier. And it's also the U.S. is a market that's dominated by Tesla, which at that kind of price point is much more of a luxury good brand driven purchase rather than an economic arbitrage. So we really don't see this fall in the oil price impacting to any degree 
the pace of decarbonization. And it's also been interesting to look at what the big oil companies are doing. So generally speaking, they've been accelerating their plans to move in the direction of investing in the low carbon economy. So the the CEOs of BP, of Shell, are also not seeing the oil price as something that um, changes the pace of the transition. If anything, like us, they expect to see it accelerate because of some of the policy drivers we talked about earlier. It's an interesting point you make about the way that the oil companies who are still digging and drilling for oil at a rapid pace. I saw an article, a scathing article saying, well, you know, you've got these lovely pictures that are covered in green and there's windmills and all sorts of things being displayed. But in fact, their investment in renewable, sustainable energy is tiny compared to their investment in fossil fuel development or the the development of fossil fuel resources, if you see what I mean. So there is a sort of dichotomy here. No, that's absolutely right. And it's not an easy transition um, for companies to make. I think those that moved earlier have done by far the best. So we hold a company called Orsted, which actually started life as Danish oil and gas company. Um, and has now transitioned to be by far and away the world leader in offshore wind. And that means that Orsted has a competitive advantage versus some of its peers who are now, you know, the bigger oil majors who are now trying to get into this industry because they have leases on the best sites. They have great relationships um, with the turbine companies, so they get attractively priced equipment because they've moved um, very quickly into a much lower risk business of producing renewable energy versus the highly volatile business of oil and gas production. Their cost of capital is more attractive. Um, they have almost you know, a more than a third market share in the installed base of renewable um, offshore wind, um, which means they have a big cost advantage on servicing those wind farms. You know, they can amortize their ships and their service organization over a large base. So I think when you look at the transition that some of their peers have to make, it's not an easy journey, but it's one that they all understand they have to accelerate. You've spoken about one specific company, and uh, I'm going to quote another paragraph from your piece. It says here, the products and services of select companies will be crucial in enabling that transition. How many companies are select in your universe? So our universe is quite large. Um, It consists of about 700 companies, about $6 trillion of market cap. So it's a lot bigger than, um, you know, people initially might expect it to be. The portfolio is very concentrated. Um, So we hold about 25 companies. Um, We have a 99% active share. Um, And that is a very much a conscious decision. We really believe that in this disruptive structural growth area, that is decarbonisation, those best in class companies like Orsted that I talked about earlier, are really well positioned um, to outperform. And that's something that often happens in disruptive structural growth areas. You have a couple of leaders that take a great deal um, of the returns. Um, And we think actually that that's one of the things that will happen post the COVID crisis, which is that, of course, this year, everyone's earnings and cash flows will be under pressure, perhaps into 2021. And those companies that were leaders already and have invested in the R&D, have invested in the manufacturing capacity in the past will be well positioned to increase that lead um, as we come out of this crisis. And some of the the second and third tier players um, will have to cut that investment. And therefore, um, you know, the the distance um, by which they're falling behind will only increase. 
There are nine points in your piece which we can't go through because of time constraints, Deirdre, but maybe you could just sum up what you're saying because the last paragraph is entitled the following, Investing in Decarbonisation in a Pandemic, Post-Pandemic World, and you make some key points there. But just maybe in the last minute or so, sum up what you've said in this article. I think what we see is that we see an accelerating trend on the policy side, as we talked about, um, a continuation in technological progress. And the one element that we perhaps haven't talked about, but we continue to monitor, which is increasing consumer awareness um, of sustainability and a likelihood, I think, that as we come out of this crisis, consumers are even more likely to think about environmental sustainability in the choices that they make. All of those things constitute great structural growth tailwinds for the companies that we hold. Um, And as I said, those companies sit across a really diverse range of industries and countries, allowing us to build a portfolio um, whose performance footprint looks really quite different um, to the market as a whole. um, And we see a lot of good reasons in place as to why that might accelerate. We see some policy drivers. We talked about Europe, but we haven't talked about the US, where you have an election coming up that could mean an enormous change in the direction of decarbonisation, of positive climate policy, um, which would be a huge tailwind um, for some of the companies um, that we hold in the portfolio. So we remain, you know, I think, quite... um, quite cautious on the market in general. We continue to do a huge amount of work stress testing our companies from a liquidity perspective, but really, I think, more optimistic than we've ever been on the long-term structural growth story. Deirdre, thanks so much for your insight. That's Deirdre Cooper, Portfolio Manager at 91 in London.